Today I'm going to preach about where is God when it hurts. And we're going to try and come up with a compelling biblical answer to this question. Uh, if you'll bow your head and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I ask for a blessing today. In fact, God, we, we expect a blessing because in Your Word, You promise one so we can hold on to that promise. God, we are going to investigate this question. Where is it? Where are you when it hurts? And God, we just, I know, God, that I was supposed to, to preach this, uh, three or four weeks ago, and it got rescheduled to today. And so, God, I just leave it in your hands as divine scheduling that this is when it was needed. And God, we just ask that you use me as your mouthpiece, that you give a, a blessing of the Holy Spirit upon this congregation. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we were to ask what the best known verse in the Bible is, what would you guys say that would be? John 3.16, right? For, who, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have, have everlasting life. That is a great verse to be the, the, the most popular verse, right? That's a good verse to have as the most popular verse. But now, if I was going to ask you what was the second most popular verse in the Bible, what would you guys think? <laughs> Philippians 4.13. There's a lot of probably different opinions. Um, the one that I think, in my short extent as a Christian, that would be maybe the most pop, second most popular would be the Scripture reading, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good, for good to them that love the God, love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. It kind of becomes the in case of emergency break glass first, right? When things fall apart, things aren't working the way you want them to work, you break the glass, you recite that verse, and everything becomes okay, right? But I want to try and understand this verse. Why is this verse true? And we want to look at it from a biblical perspective. Notice that it does say that we know that all things work together for good. It doesn't say that they are good. Right? They work together for good. There's a distinct difference there. I hope you guys hear that. Now the message we have today, I've actually entitled, The Silence of God. There are times in our lives when we experience the silence of God. I've been in this church for a couple of years, and this church has had a rocky, bumpy road. A couple of years ago, um, you know, my family were coming to this church, and we were the only ones in this church. And uh, we've had times where it was going up. We had times where it was going down. And hopefully right now it's going back up. But um, there were times when we sat here and we asked, why? Why are we here? Did God bring us here? 
because we thought he did, but then the church kind of fell apart. Are we doing something wrong? We'd pray, we'd ask. There was never an answer. We didn't know if we were doing things wrong, if we were in the wrong place. All we could hear was the deafening silence of God. We even had times where it was incredibly difficult when one of our children would wake up in the morning and he said, guess what I prayed for? I don't, I don't know. What'd you pray for? I prayed that there would be kids at church. You know, it's hard when you experience things like that because you don't know if they'll be answered, right? But then God kind of brought me down back to reality because it was, we did, uh, luckily we had uh, Pastor Rich assigned to us and uh, things started getting a little bit better, but the church wasn't really growing and I was still struggling. Am I doing the right thing? Are we do, am I in the right place? What's going on? You know, God put me to work, right? That's what you just want. Put me to work. Give me a job to do. I don't even care what job it is. Just put me to work. You know, don't, I don't know why I'm out here mowing the grass when there's no one that shows up on the Sabbath, right? And, uh, but on Facebook, I saw a post and some of you may have been familiar with this circumstance, but I saw a post from some new friends of mine from a neighboring church uh, in Ardmore, and they had posted that this day they would be celebrating what would have been their son's two-year second birthday. And uh, that is something a little more serious than just sitting in an empty church to be asking why, God. It's something that's very difficult. Now, I looked into some of the, I tried to look and research some of the details, like what had happened, you know, because we all want to know why. What, what happened? Why did it happen? And I can't really go into the details, otherwise I will lose my composure to be able to continue to preach. But it's a very sad set of circumstance. But we think of this verse, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And I believe that. Does anybody else believe that? Say amen. But it sounds trite to quote that in a situation where somebody is suffering. We had somebody who lost their child. We have somebody who loses their friend. We have somebody who's struggling in the church. All things work for good. That doesn't sound like a very good thing to be quoting. It sounds rude almost, but we know it to be true. Desire of Ages, page 528. This is a, uh, a quote that I'm going to provide. And in prosperity, everyone will say, Amen. That's true. But again, imagine saying this in a moment of adversity. Listen very carefully. It says, To all who are reaching out to feel the guiding hand of God, the moment of greatest discouragement is the time when divine help is nearest. Now here's the kicker sentence. They will look back with thankfulness upon the darkest part of their way. Think about that. Look back with what? 
thankfulness. Imagine how audacious. It's almost insane. I mean, can you imagine looking at these this couple and saying, you'll look back with thankfulness. Someone who just got diagnosed with cancer, you'll look back with thankfulness. <laughs> what? That makes no sense. Many of you have experienced genuine personal tragedy. And if you haven't, you will sometime in the future. But we ask, where is God in this? Where is God when these things happen? And if we're going to be completely candid, there are times when we feel like the heavens are brass. We send up a prayer and it bounces right back with a gong. The moment we need to hear the voice of God the most is when everything is quiet. And we just want to know why. As human beings, we're able to endure a great, great deal of difficulty and hardship if we know why. It's one thing to be burned at the cross because we say glory be to God, but it's a whole nother thing to keep your chin up when your child's gone, when you think God, doesn't my child work better for you if he's alive than dead? I know he would work better for me. I know he, I know in my life would be better. What about when the t- test comes back positive with cancer? God, wouldn't I be a better soldier, a Christian soldier for you if I was healthy and alive than struggling with my health? We don't, all we want to know is why. Why, Lord? And it can be as simple, we each get in our own little heads of what's going on, it can be as simple as sitting in a church that seems to be empty and dying and not knowing why. Why, God? Why are we here? What is the point? There are three big instances in the Bible that I have found that I wanted to talk about today where God is strangely and visibly silent. Almost inexplicably so. So I think if we look at these particular examples, we can be bolstered in the face of trials and adversity. And we can be equipped to understand why uh, that I believe Romans 8.28 is true. Let's look at Matthew 11. This is the first photograph, the first picture, the first Scene of the silence of God. We're going to look at Matthew 11, verse 1 through 3. It says, And it came to pass, then Jesus had made an end of commanding His twelve disciples. He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now where is John in this scene? He's in prison, right? Now, let's put that in context. Which John is this? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, and in my mind's eye, I see John the Baptist as this man of faith, this man who's at the River Jordan, he's preaching, he's discipling, he's organizing, he's like you over here, he's baptizing, 
He's showing people the way, calling people to repentance, baptizing them from their sins. And he says at some point, he's baptizing, he's doing all these different things, and he stops. And he looks ahead. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he speaks with confidence. Behold. This is stop, look, believe. That's what behold means. It's inviting people to look at what he's looking at and to believe what he's seeing. It's not just, pardon me, are you? Oh, hey, look, I think that's... It's behold, this is the Lamb of God. And yet, here... We, we see that, we see that he's, we know that he knew the Messiah, right? He knew the Messiah in, in, in the womb. We see that he experienced Jesus Christ's baptism himself and saw the, the dove coming down from heavens. Heard the rumbling in the, the God's voice in the sky. There's conviction all around and people believe that this is the Messiah because John believed, right? But here in Matthew 11, something has happened. The reason he is rebuked, the reason he's in this situation is that he rebuked Herod for marrying Herodias, right? He married uh, his brother's wife, and John the Baptist was a man of principle. Can I get an amen? We need more men and women of principle, people who are willing to stand for what's right. He wasn't a man of policy and politic. He was a man of principle. Now, I have a fear of prison, right? And it's probably because I like to move around so much. You know, my wife, she likes to... uh joke around when we're at friends or talking to people and have a, you know, a little party or whatever. And she will actually show people her trick is that while I'm talking and explaining things, she'll hold my hands and then let them go and let me talk again because I can't talk unless I have my hands moving, right? And so that's something that I don't think I could handle. I would rather, I would rather die as a martyr than to have to endure that because I like to move. But we think of John. Now, he grew up in the wilderness. He's an outdoorsy person. He's someone who lived off the land and got his own food, you know, did all his own stuff. And yet now he's in prison cell because some little floozy danced a dance, right? And he's about ready to lose his head. Now, he knew Jesus was the Messiah, but he started to get thoughts in his head. He started thinking, well, this was more than likely the Messiah, right? This was, and, and this, I'm Jesus' cousin. If Jesus was the, 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 my, the Messiah, why am I rotting in prison? You know, first, I proclaimed that Jesus was coming and I prepared the way. Surely, I have more to do for Jesus while I'm in, while I'm out, while I'm free. You know, why am I rotting away in this prison? Aren't I going to be more beneficial to Jesus outside? You know, why is he not rectifying this situation? Why couldn't, 
aren't I more valuable outdoors preaching, calling people to repentance, baptizing? So he calls his disciples to him. This is verse two and three we just read. Now, when Jesus, John had heard the, in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So does this sound like John, the John we just, we, we were just talking about? You know, he said, Behold, this is him. But Jesus answers in verse four. He says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again of those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so then Jesus gives a mild rebuke to add on there. He says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So the disciples would have come back and shared this with John. And John's spirit would have been bolstered again, right? He's like, aha, I knew it. Any day now, he's going to get me out of here. That's what I'm thinking that he would have had to have been thinking, right? I mean, he is the Messiah. He's going to fix this whole situation, right? Days pass. One day, two days. We don't know how long. Maybe weeks. We don't know. He knew without a doubt, but he still never got the why. He experienced the silence of God. So Jesus gave him a compliment in verse 11. It says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He said it after, so it wouldn't have been relayed to John that he said this, but he's given a compliment about John to his disciples. Now, I can look at that, and from my perspective, from my earthly position, I think, boy, that is a very pathetic way to treat the greatest, right? So Jesus is saying he's the greatest, but we're letting him sit in prison and rot, right? It seems like a bad treatment. So again, we know that John loved the outdoors. He loved to preach. He loved to baptize. He loved to get outside and smell freedom. Day after day, he's asking why the silence of God. And then one day... We hear a knock, right? The guards are here. They unshackle him. They march him out of the cell. I imagine John's thinking, yes, this is it. Right? Guards are marching him down the hallway. He's, he's going, I'm, I'm gonna, it's time to be free. I can taste it. Here he is heading to freedom. But, Eventually, at some point, he realizes that he's found himself in the executioner's chamber instead. And you know at the point that John has his head forced down to the execution block and that blade comes sliding out of his sheath or its axe or whatever it is, he knows there's no way out at this point. He knows his outcome. His head is placed on a platter for all to see because some little girl danced a dance. Isn't that great? Isn't that a fantastic end to the greatest that ever was? Now, I don't believe that John ever doubted who Jesus was after he was reaffirmed. Desire of Ages said that once he received the news, he never again doubted, right? He knew who the, what the, uh, the identity of Jesus. But even though he knew intellectually he still never got the why. The why would have made it so much easier, but it never came. 
And that's how it could be with us someday. Especially when it comes down to familial or personal tragedies, we often never get the why. We just have to endure through. So I can't help thinking about that couple that lost their son in that accident. And I can't help thinking, what if it was one of my boys? And I think, why? Why did that have to happen? Why did it have to happen the way that it happened? What must the parents be asking if I'm looking outside, looking in, and I'm saying why? What are they thinking? What are other people experiencing? When I see other people experiencing these tragedies, and I look at them and I can't figure them out. You know, when you're wrapped up in your own issue, it's so overwhelming. You can't get out of your own head sometimes. Let's look at a second instance. We'll go to John 11. This is the fourth book in the Gospel. John 11. Uh, many of you will probably know this is the story of Lazarus. <clears throat> so we'll look at starting in verse 1, John 11. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister, uh, the town of Mary and their sister Martha. It was that Mary which appointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, it was sick, he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was in this. We know from the chapter before, he was approximate to Jerusalem. Uh, John 10.40 says that he had headed off to back to Jordan where, about where he had uh, uh, been baptized. But we notice here that there was no request for Jesus to come, right? The, co the thing is, is just he just said, Lord, behold, whom he whom thou lovest is sick. The expectation is that he's going to come, right? I mean, if you, if you go to someone and say, hey, the guy you love is sick. Okay, well, let's go. You driving or me, right? It's just automatic. And we see that Jesus, it says Jesus loved them and then stayed two days. We know that, again, we know that Jesus was proximate to Jerusalem. Lazarus was in Bethany. Um, now, we don't know exactly how far everything was. This is just kind of a little uh, example, I guess. Uh, now, we know that he's probably within 12 miles, give or take, right? How fast can you go 12 miles? I know I'm not a very great runner, um, and I could probably do 12 miles, maybe three hours. I don't know. That's pretty slow, but... I'm slow. <laughs> um, you know, so, but let's say, I mean, I saw somebody, they were, they were posting times for a marathon, right? Like what would be the average good time for a full marathon, which would be 23 miles. That's almost twice the distance. And they said a really slow time for a marathon would be five hours, right? So that's, and that's a full marathon. And you think, oh, well, that's people that are in shape and trying. Well, back in Jesus's day, first off, where do we get the health message? Jesus, right? So he's probably pretty darn healthy. And secondly, 
all they did was walk everywhere. I mean, that's what they did. They used their feet. Uh, they didn't have transportation like we have, right? So you would assume that they would be pretty much sick or pretty much uh, in, in health and, and ability. But we don't know what this sickness was that, Laz- that inflicted Lazarus. We assume that it probably started out mild, but it started getting worse and worse and worse. They probably had some doctors or friends or herbs that they were using and different things. And eventually it got so bad that they needed to get Jesus involved. They're like, we need to go send for Jesus or we're going to lose our brother, right? So they sent for Jesus and it, or they sent for Jesus. And so it must have been a very critical point in the sickness that they were seeing in Lazarus. So I could just imagine them there tending to their brother at their bedside, right? They're putting water on his head and they're, they're looking and they've sent a messenger already. And they think he's dying. They think it's critical. But they're looking to the door and they're expecting to see that familiar face of Jesus. That familiar shape to darken the door. And they're sitting there and they just keep tending to their brother. And any minute now, any minute now, Jesus. Any minute now, Jesus is going to come. Surely Jesus is going to come. Right? You keep, they called for him. They sent message for him. He who you love is sick. Come. Four hours pass, five hours pass, nighttime falls, whatever sleep they could manage to get. They wake up the next morning. The messenger's back, right? The messenger came back yesterday. Where's Jesus? Jesus has got to be on the compound somewhere. No, Martha, Jesus isn't here. No, the messenger came back yesterday. What do you mean Jesus isn't here? You know, now there's something that you'll have to do here. You know the end of the story, right? Say, well, brother Jason, what does it matter? We know that Lazarus was resurrected, right? It's, it's no big deal. Well, have you ever seen like some of those things we do online now where you have things played in real time, right? We have to put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Martha because if we want to experience what they experienced, this is where some time of meditation can take place that we can look at them and we can try to understand things from their perspective and truly get something bigger out of this story than just seeing the resurrection at the end. We have to disabuse ourselves from the historical aspect of knowing the end of the story from the beginning and actually look at it from inside the story, right? They're experiencing it real time. When you are asking for Jesus to help you and He doesn't help you and you just experience the silence of God, this is where Mary and Martha are. Imagine the little boy that I was talking about. Only 18 months. I know without a doubt he'll be in heaven. But how callous would it have been to look at these family when this accident happened and say, What's wrong? Come on. You know he's going to be resurrected. Right? It's the same thing with this story, right? Let's pretend we're in the middle of it. They were expecting this personal family tragedy, this difficulty, and they know he's going to be resurrected, but they're not at that point yet. Tending to their brother, waiting for Jesus to come, Suddenly, the unexpected happens. The unthinkable happens. He dies. 
He died. They knew Jesus. Their brother died. To make things worse, let's go to verse 14 here. And then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And listen to the first few words. And I am glad. Now we can read the rest of it. For your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe, nevertheless let us go unto him. So he's sitting there talking to the disciples and he says, Lazarus is dead. I am glad. That would have kind of floored me. I don't know if the disciples heard the rest of his sentence or not, but it would, those two things don't go naturally together. Especially when you think you're following the Messiah. <clears throat> but what about the confusion of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary? That what they're experiencing. I mean, Jesus healed people he didn't even know. Jesus at times healed people that weren't even thankful. Jesus healed people with such a universality and kindness. Here is one of Jesus' own friends. I have a friend in Jesus, right? That's how the song goes. Where's Jesus? You know they were all thinking about it. Let's look at verse 21. says, and then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been there, been here, my brother had not died. Jesus finally arrives. He's a whopping 12 miles away. It's four days after he died. The funeral's over. Family came from farther away than Jesus was to experience this funeral. The funeral is done. Lazarus is buried. This is the very first thing that Martha says. If thou hadst been here, my brother would have not died. Is that a statement of faith? Yeah, right? I know you would have healed him. If you would have been here, you would have healed him. But what else is there? What else is contained in that sentence? There's doubt. Where were you? I know you would have healed him if you were here. Where were you? You have... Two sides, a statement of faith and where were you? And you know that Mary and Martha had been talking because when Mary comes along, she says the same exact thing. We look in verse 32. And then Mary saw, uh, and then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Jesus came four days late. Now here's an important part. They had not lost confidence in Jesus' identity like John had, right? They knew who Jesus was. They have that statement of faith. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened, right? They knew who Jesus was. They never lost that. So the important part here is when personal tragedy and difficulty strikes, you might not have cause to doubt God's goodness, right? But I'm going to be bold to say that times will occur that you will have cause to doubt His plan. Have mercy. Did you hear the distinction there? 
There's a difference between doubting His goodness and doubting the plan. Because when you're in this tragedy and you're experiencing these things that went wrong, why is it all happening? They didn't doubt His goodness, but they doubted His plan. All they needed was a why. Day after day, they were experiencing this. They experienced the funeral. They experienced everything. Just imagine how easy it would have been to endure this tragedy if Jesus would have sent back the messenger with a message saying, don't worry about it. He's going to die, and then I'm going to come and resurrect Him. Right? That would have been really easy. And then how... Would it, how easy would it have made it? I would have said that it would have made it almost enjoyable, right? When you're sitting around and you know what's going to happen, you become a pillar of strength. Oh, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right, right? You, you're suddenly this person that everybody can lean on. Everybody, you've got the strong soul, 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 shoulder. Blah. <laughs> so, you're, 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 you're able to do this, but Jesus just had to tell them, but Nothing. He did not say a word. Now, we know that Jesus told them nothing because when He came to Martha and He said that, G- that Lazarus is going to be resurrected and your brother will rise again, she said, I know he'll rise again in the last day. Right? So they weren't told this. They needed to know the why. It could have endured the tragedy with grace and dignity if they would have just known the why. It would have made the whole thing easier. But instead, they experience the silence of God. Now, I can remember times in the last couple of years when I would come to this church and I would come on a Friday night when the church was empty and I would turn on the AC or the heat or whatever it was. And I'm not sure exactly why I'm doing it because no one's coming tomorrow. But maybe somebody will come. And I would sit up here and I would get on my knees and I would pray to God and I would ask Him, what's going on, God? Are you even with me? Right? Please, God, give me a tap on the shoulder. Just show me you're with me. I don't even need to know the why. You start bargaining with Him, right? I don't need to know the why yet. Just tell me you're here, right? Tap me on the shoulder. You know, you, you get ready, right? You sit in there. I'm doing this as a grown man, <laughs> right? You're thinking, God, just show me. Now, do you think I got the tap? No, no, I didn't get the tap. Neither did John, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Maybe not you. Maybe you don't get the tap. Maybe you don't know that God is even with you. Have you ever wondered though, sometimes we want something, right? Mary Martha wanted healing and we're distraught because we didn't get the healing. Jesus wanted to give him something better, a resurrection. Do you want something less than what God really wants to give you? Sometimes we get so stuck in our own head of this tragedy of what's going on and we don't always feel like we're trusting the gift giver. We're not feeling that we're trusting the person who has orchestrated the whole thing. 
We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know why things are happening. But we need to trust Him that a greater blessing is on the horizon. Let's look at the third and final instance. And this, to be honest, trumps them all. It is Matthew 26. It is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive oil press. It's where they put olives and they would put it in this machine and they would turn and it would squeeze all the olives until all the oil came out of them. And this was a favorite place of Jesus to go. He goes now because He knows something terrible is about to happen. Let's read verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Something is happening to Jesus that the disciples have never before seen. Continue reading, verse 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Do you know what that means? My soul is sorrowful even unto death. My soul is dying. That's how sad and how much pressure. That's the olive oil press working on Jesus. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. He fell on His face. The My picture of Jesus is that He's always been very poised. Not stoic, not aloof, but poised. Right? Put together. Organized. In control. Calm. What would it have been like for Peter to see this Jesus who's always in control fall on his face? Right? Peter, this is the same Jesus that there they were in a raging storm being thrown about on a, on a boat and Jesus is fall asleep. Right? They have to go wake him up. And then when they wake him up, Jesus gets up and He says, settle down. <laughs> right? And he's like, all right, boys, I gotta go back to sleep. Right? I mean, he's calm, he's poised, he's in control. This is the same Jesus that lands his boat on shore, and two demoniacs come running at him, resembling more wild beasts than men, according to Desire of Ages. And what does Jesus do? He just stands there. The two beasts running at him, raging at Jesus, and he talks as calmly as possible. Right? Again, he's not stoic. He's not aloof. He's just calm and in control. Nothing caught him by surprise. He started every day with prayer and devotion to God the Father. What would it have been like for Peter, James, and John to see that poised Jesus walk into the garden and hit his face on the ground and start praying the way he was praying? You know their heart had to skip a beat. Verse 39, O oh my Father, 
if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. What's in this cup? It's the wine of the wrath of God against sin. Jesus is not play acting. He knows what is in that cup and he feels his personal relationship with God being ripped apart. He does not want to go through it. He's scared. Verse 40, And he cometh unto the disciples, findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went and prayed, went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thou, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. <clears throat> Have you ever lost something and prayed that you would find it? I'm pretty good at losing stuff. At my house, I start lots of projects all over the place. You know, I got a full-time job. I've got, you know, a growing family. We've have all these projects. We need to get these things done. And a lot of times I will leave tools and things like that where the last project was. And so then I'm asking my wife, you know, where is this stuff? And sometimes I lose things and I have to pray to God. And I'm like, God, help me find my drill. I don't know where my drill is. Right. And when, incidentally, when I find my drill, God usually tell me where it is through my wife. <laughs> but, but why is it that you stop praying for that drill? Because you found it, right? You got your answer, right? You stop praying that. Now, Jesus prayed this three times. Why? Because he didn't get the answer he wanted, right? In fact, I would go as far to say that he didn't get any answer. He just experiences the silence of God. This is Jesus experiencing the silence of God. We see Christ in the garden. He says, Father, are you there? I'm looking at this cup, God. I don't want to drink it. If there's any way, please, Father, please take this cup from me. He will go to the cross and die. All the while bearing the weight of the silence of God. Now he goes to the cross. It's midday, but it looks like midnight. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Desire of Ages, page 753, it says, In that thick darkness... God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness His pavilion and conceals His glory from human eyes. God and His holy angels were beside the cross. Isn't it ironic that Jesus at this moment feels the furthest He's ever been from His Father in 33 years and yet He's the closest He's ever been to His Father in 33 years. The Father was with His Son, yet His presence was not revealed. Had His glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone. 
and of the people there was none with him. We forget about this. We forget about the suffering. We think Jesus died for our sins. We're all forgiven. We have grace. We have mercy. But we forget about the suffering. We forget about what He goes through to relate to us in every single way. Most sins that we struggle with are at their basis caused by some suffering that we've experienced, right? You felt betrayed. You felt alone. These things God, Jesus, dealt with them here on earth. He felt betrayal. He felt loneliness. He felt abuse, abandonment, temptation, rejection. All the things bad that happened to us, they happened to Jesus in threefold. They beat Him to the point where He didn't look like a man anymore. Talk about betrayal. He was walking to the cross carrying His own cross and they were ripping out His beard and spitting on Him. These were people that not too long ago were coming for Him asking for healing, saying, yea, the Messiah. Here we even see that He endured the silence of God. He did it to relate to us. When you think God's not listening to me, I'm experiencing something more traumatic than I can handle, Jesus experienced it too. Silence and rejection are not the same thing. A lot of times we think that silence means rejection. When we feel the silence of God, we feel that we've done something wrong. I've done that. I've prayed. He sat here and I thought, we've done something wrong. But that's not what's happening. John wasn't rejected. Mary and Martha wasn't rejected. Jesus wasn't rejected. It's possible for godly people, even God Himself, to endure the silence of God. The closing story I have for you is about a singer-songwriter, Andrew Peterson. At one point, he went to a monastery in Kentucky to sing. And some of his acoustic work is really good. If you ever look him up, some of my, uh, his acoustic work is really one of my favorite stuff. But while he's there in this monastery and he's singing for these monks and stuff, uh, he pray, was praying and fasting for three days because he needed an answer to what he was praying about, right? And he wanted to prove to God he was worthy of this answer. Have you ever done that? You're like, God, just give me what I want. Just, I'll do anything you want. Just tell me the price, right? I pray. I fast. You know, what do you want me to do? Put, you want me to put in three days? Three days of fasting? A whole week? I maybe can do a week, you know? I've done that before where you're, you're trying to bargain, right? But this uh, Andrew, he doesn't get his answer. And he goes for a walk on the last day that he's there in this monastery. And he's angry. He's tired. He's hungry. And as he's walking through the trees on this path, he sees these arrows, and the arrows on the sign point, and it says, to the statues, right? So he's, he's going to the statue, and he finds the statue of Peter and James and John, and they're asleep. And he says, oh, this is Garden Gethsemane, right? Jesus is probably up ahead, right? And he walks up the path, and he has a picture of Jesus in his mind. Some people, they, they think, I, I've seen these pictures of Jesus in Garden of Gethsemane and he always looks like that poised calm Jesus that we like to see in the rest of the story but in Gethsemane he wasn't that way so when he gets there 
he sees the statue of Jesus on his knees, his arched back, his back arched, his hands over his eyes. He's crying out in agony. And this is what he says. He says, I could tell that Jesus was in agony. And in that moment, it dawned on me that he looked the way that my heart felt. He felt selfish in how he had been praying. He says, my God, my God, why have you left me alone? Why won't you give me the answer I want? But he goes on to say, for this moment, he says, on the walk back, I had realized I had been comforted. My pain had not been taken away, but I was comforted in the fact that God, the God that I loved and worshipped, is familiar with my sorrows. He understands me. So I want to play you the song that he played, that he wrote after experiencing this. And at the end of the song, I'll close in prayer. And it's up to you guys if you want to join me in kneeling or if you want to just pray at your seat. Uh, but I'll close with a prayer at the end of it. Pay attention to these words because they're very powerful, powerful words. To drive a man crazy It'll break a man's faith It's enough to make him wonder If he's ever been sane When he's bleeding for comfort From thy staff and thy rod And the heaven's only answer Is the silence of God And it'll shake a man's timbers When he loses his heart When he has to remember What broke him apart And this yoke may be easy But this burden is not When the crying fields are frozen By the silence of God and if a man has got to listen To the voices of the mob Who are reeling in the throes Of all the happiness they've got When they tell you all their troubles Have been nailed up to that cross Well then what about the times When even followers get lost all get lost sometimes There's a statue of Jesus On a monastery knoll In the hills of Kentucky All quiet and cold And he's kneeling in the garden As silent as a stone And all his friends are sleeping He's weeping all alone And the man of all sorrows He never forgot What sorrow is carried 
by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. In the holy lonesome echo of the silence of God. sometimes wrestle in your silence. But we know, God, that there is a high priest interceding for us right now in heaven. Someone that has walked in our shoes before us, who cares deeply for us. Some of us go through this silence of God and we get an unhealthy picture of God. Some have given up completely some are still walking as a Christian disciple, but are still in a deep amount of pain. We know today that Jesus understands. That Jesus is available to us even now. And He is willing to send angels from heaven to comfort us in our despair. We thank You that Your love never fails. That we hold tight to Your promise that You will bring comfort to us and we plead for a double portion for those that are hurting. We ask for a revival, God. We plead with You for the latter rain. Turn this church into a beacon of light to this area. Let Your glory be known. God, we know the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. In the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. In Jesus' most holy and precious name, let all God's people say, Amen.